So today we're in a week two of our series called Made for More. And the concept is that we really are made for more. That this life and what we're experiencing right now is not all that God has planned for us. That whether we're experiencing great highs or great lows, whatever we're experiencing in in our life right now, that's not God's full potential for us. And we want to see that expand, explode in our lives Last week, we talked about the baseline, that if you don't know how to treat something, or I'm sorry, if you don't know the value of something, you won't know how to treat something. That if you don't know a given worth of a thing, you don't know how it should be treated. And the same thing goes for us. If we don't know how or what we are worth, we won't know how we are to be treated. Well, today I want to take that to a different level. I want to take that to a different level. In this concept that we are crowned with glory and honor, dignity and worth, that God has set us to rule over the works of His hands, while we're here on planet Earth, that we're to have this sense of dominion, we're to understand the life that we live. Now, the problem is religion will put up this huge wall in front of you when we start to to pattern our lives down this track. There's a huge wall that will just come up in front of all of us, and most of us don't think about it specifically, but it's buried in kind of our heart and our mind, and it's the idea of trials, That before we're going to live a life that's successful in God, before we're going to live a life that exemplifies the life that God has for us, before we're going to live that life in full, many of us think we put a pause and we think about the trials that we've gone through or that we're going through or that we see happening on the horizon. And we have this mentality that God is the originator of all the issues in our life, all the negative things and the positive things. Because he's sovereign, right? And if so, if something negative happens, it has to be because he allowed this negativity to happen. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1 and verse 13. We're going to dispense with this rumor pretty quickly. Trials are not given by God to develop you. In fact, God isn't torturing you to teach you something. God doesn't give you cancer to teach you something. He doesn't cut your brake lines to teach you. He doesn't get you fired from your job to teach you anything. And let me, let me explain this very clearly. James chapter 1, verse 13. This is James, the brother of Jesus. So it's the guy who, when Jesus was on the planet, wasn't sure if his brother really was the Messiah, sees the life of Jesus, all that he goes through and says, well, maybe there's something to it, turns into a Christ follower, becomes one of the guideposts that we have for understanding the person of Jesus and the person of God in the New Testament as he wrote one of the books. These are his words. Let no one say when he is tempted, that word tempted can be translated, tempted, tested, tried. Let no one say when he is tempted, tested, tried, I am being tempted, tested, or tried by God. For God cannot test, tempt, try by evil. And he himself does not test, tempt, try anyone. Now, you might be wondering if I have a trick Bible. Go look at yours. Yours says the same thing mine says. Those words are real. They're written out. They've been studied for many, many years. It's a scripture that people look over all the time because it doesn't fit a religious narrative. If the religious narrative is this, that God puts trials in your way to test you, if God puts trials and temptation, if God puts in your way something to try you, that he is controlling you. And it puts all of the control back into the sovereign hand of God and says that whatever in life will be, it must be whatever it is. Why? Because we have no way in which we can express our own desire, our own wants, our own needs. We have no way that we can express the God-given directive for our life. God just has to do it 
without our intervention, without our connection, without our investment. That is so not true. But the doctrine comes because we have this idea in the back of our head that all of these negative things, all of these trials are for a purpose, and the greater purpose is that God is testing us. You know, there are many trials that we go through just because we're stupid. Amen. That should get a better amen, right? Listen, I tore both tricep tendons off my arm at the same time working out, pushing heavy weights over my head. And I'm trying, you know, just trying to get swole and big. And I had worked out for 15 years, thought I was the stuff. For about five years, I was suffering with major tendonitis in my elbows. The Holy Spirit said, you should stop that. My doctor said, you should not do that anymore. You should take a break. My father, who's a chiropractor, looked at the pain in my joints and said, you probably need to stop pushing the weight so heavy. And I thought I knew better. So I went to the gym, pushed really hard. And guess what happened? Snapped both tricep tendons off at the same time. Somebody asked me in that in that whole scenario, after surgeries, and my arms look like Frankenstein because they're stuck out to here with the, the braces on from my shoulder to my, to my wrist. Someone asked me, what is God teaching you? I said, God's teaching me that I'm stupid. And I should have listened. Most of us, what we see in life, what happens to us in life, is of our own accord. Now, sometimes things happen to you because somebody else is stupid. Sometimes things happen in your life because someone propagates something against you because they're ignorant. They've done something dumb. They've done something wrong. But we have to get free from the idea that these things happen because God's trying to teach us something. That's not the point. And in fact, it goes totally against the scripture in James chapter 1 and verse 13. You ought to memorize it every time one of your friends says, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. You can say, that's not the Bible. That's a cat poster. James says, God isn't testing me. James tells me that God is not trying me. James tells me that God wants to give me good gifts. If you read further on in that, in that chapter, that all this goodness originates from the person of God, not testing, tempting, or trying. That word tempt, test, try in the Greek, uh, periazo, is something that people have debated for years, but it's finally clear that we can all come to a con consensus that has three main parts. It literally means the idea of I test, I tempt, I try. God is not tempting, testing, or trying anyone, and he wouldn't do it through evil practices anyway. In fact, he wards against this kind of thought. Our God has already given us a stay off from this kind of thought in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 warns us that we shouldn't flip the script and start calling good evil and evil good. It says, how terrible will it be for those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute what is bitter for sweet and sweet for what is bitter. That there's a place for things that we can have a defined scope of what life really looks like, that we can understand this is bad and this is evil. And God, a good, sovereign God, wouldn't use evil means to teach, to try, to test. And by the way, he's not testing, trying anyone. We have to understand how to break down that thought process so that we can eventually live the life that God intends us to live. He intends us to live one of an overcomer. As we read last week in Psalms and in Hebrews, what is man that you're mindful of him, that you crown him with glory and honor, dignity and worth, that you set him to rule over the works of your hands. Most of us think of that scripture and we think, well, that can't be me. Look at what I've done. 
That can't be me. Look at what I've gone through. That can't be me. God's still trying to figure out if I'm good enough. Wrong. Trials are tools of the enemy to cause us to yield our dignity and worth and give him, the enemy, lordship of our life. Trials are nothing more than advances from the adversary, advances from our enemy for us to yield our dignity and worth, that it no longer is held in the palm of our Savior, that our dignity and worth is now held in the outcome of a trial. How do we go through that? God somehow saw fit to get us fired from our job. Well, how are we taking it? And that'll prove whether or not we have dignity or worth. God caused some other tragedy to impress itself against our life. How are we walking through that? That will prove if we have any dignity or worth. No, the fact is you have dignity and worth, glory and honor because of who you are and how you've been crowned, that you've been given dignity and worth, glory and honor based on that personhood of Jesus Christ. That he came, he died on a cross to make all things right, all things new. And that starts in your life first. And if we give in to the idea that God is testing us and tempting us through these trials, eventually we give over lordship to the enemy because all he is doing is now using the religious rot in our brain to control us. Trials are meant to be overcome. They're not meant to be, sub they're not meant to be uh, things that subdue us. As Christian people, Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to give you a moment to turn there, uh, verse 26 and 28 uh, through 28. We're going to read what it is for God to set up man in his image and likeness. He has a direct stated purpose. From the foundation of the earth, when he first created the first man, the first woman, he decided that he would set the boundaries, that he would set the ground rules. Many of us don't even know what those look like says this, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. You need to highlight that word, study it out. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So at the very least, you know you have dominion over creeps. But God says later on that you have dominion over the birds, the cattle. You have dominion over the entire earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is the law of double reference, where the Bible says you're created one way, and just to exemplify the point, God rephrases it and says you're created in God's image. Just so we don't miss the point, he says God created man in his own image. By the way, he created man in his own image. He created them male and female, so we don't get off some weird course that somehow the man isn't, is created more in God's image than the woman or the woman created more in God's image than the man. That's not true. He created them male and female. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over everything that moves on the earth. He gave man a directive. He set them in the Garden of Eden. He said, this is what your purpose is, that you are to be a reflection of my image, that you are to be a reflection of my personhood here on earth. And as you reflect who I am, I'm going to give you a job to do. That you would be fruitful and that you would multiply. Most people think that has to do with breeding. It has more to do with that. That you would learn how to take the resources that God has given you and multiply them over and over and over and again 
Some of you have been given great resources, mental abilities, physical abilities, compassionate hands and hearts. God has given you abilities and He expects those in turn to be multiplied so that you can fill the earth and subdue it. So that you can fill this earth, what? With the exemplified presence of God that you become a conduit to show other people what Jesus looks like. And in doing that, you grow this kingdom of God. We do need to have babies as Christians and grow Christian babies, but we also need to have an influence on our culture. That's why he uses the next phrase there, that we would subdue the earth, that there will be something fighting against the God-given providence in our life, that there will be something fighting against what God's called us to do, yet we have every right and the station in which we're created to push that down and to subdue it, to have dominion. And we could go over what those finer points are, that we are to have dominion, that we are God's crowned and king of creation here on planet earth. There is nothing created above mankind on the earth. Now listen, I love the Save the Dolphins campaigns. I think we need to be great stewards of what God has given us here on planet Earth. I think we as Christians should be great conservationists. We should take what God has given us seriously. We should do well with what God has given us. However, a dolphin's not above a baby. I don't care what the endangered species is, it's not above a human life. The human life means much more than anything. Why? Because according to Scripture, it has the right and the responsibility to guide the rest of creation. If that child is trained right, we won't have to worry about a depleting dolphin population. It'll do what it can to correct that behavior so the dolphins can thrive. The dolphins will never correct the environment so that a baby can thrive. You understand what I'm getting at? That we as human persons are given the great responsibility that when God gave us this planet, that we have dominion over it. In every sense of the word, this isn't a conservationist message. This is honestly about you understanding how you're created. See, you can't do anything great in this world until you understand the authority that lies within you. You can't go after some great cause until you understand in your day-to-day -day that the world itself is subject to the God that's on the inside of you. The world itself has to bend. Every trial, every temptation has to bend to the God that's on the inside of you. And I'll tell you the number one reason people fail in this is not necessarily because they don't feel up to the task. It's not necessarily because they feel beat down and low. Because most of us with a good pump up and rah-rah session, we can get that excitement in our heart. Most of us, this doesn't work out like we anticipate because time becomes the biggest thief to our faith. We allow time to march on and we haven't gotten what we wanted microwaved an instant. And so we look at God and go, where are you? And he says, I'm working on my timeline, not yours. We don't get what we want exactly when and how we want it. And we wonder if God is afar off, if he even hears our prayers, yet he's been listening the whole time. Because in our life, God is at work in about 10,000 points of light. And we are only seeing about three or four or five, maybe a hundred at a time. We see such a short picture of where God is intersecting in every point in our life, and yet we look at him and wonder, God, how come you didn't show up on my timeline? And he's thinking, son, daughter, if you just be patient, you have no idea what you can't overcome if you'll just be patient. It's a hard one for me. I don't like patience for nothing. 
<laughs> my mom's here. She can testify to that. My wife's here. She will definitely tell you I'm not a patient person. I want it yesterday. I don't care what it is. I want it yesterday. I want it done perfectly. And I want it yesterday. But the fact is that doesn't happen in real life. In fact, I go on a diet. I expect the first time I don't need a cookie to lose 15 pounds. Anybody else? Right? Amen. Hallelujah. That's how it's supposed to work, isn't it? I, one hour on the treadmill, I should look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Doesn't happen that way. But most of us are impatient in that respect. All of the situations, all of the, the, the moments where, where we're tempted, we're tested, where our faith is put to the test, these are serious moments where we can learn to live as an overcomer. God is very, 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 very serious about us living life as an overcomer. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the Scripture that he's lined out to teach us what it is to, what life is to look like as an overcomer. Chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Those of us who understand the overcoming nature of God, we will be given the right to the tree that is sustaining of life. We will be given the right to eat of that fruit that is life-giving. You ever wonder how someone who's hitting just, man, they're just hitting one goal after another. They seem to get in this rhythm of sustaining this, this drive of winning. It's because God literally says, when you overcome, I will give you the right to eat of the of the tree of life, that it's going to be a part of you. It's going to be infused in your nature that you're going to be a winner because you've taken, you've taken part in God's purpose on this planet. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Meaning that once this body fades away, don't worry about it. You're going to find heaven as your home. You can have total assurance that when you walk in the steps of an overcomer, when you understand that you are meant to be an overcomer, you don't have to fear death because on the other side is just a greater version of the life that you're living today. It might be unknown. It might be something you don't fully understand, but it is so much greater when we move on. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17 he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I love that one. To him who overcomes, I'll give you the secret things that nourish you. I'll give you the secret things that I've been holding back, not holding from you, but holding for you. To him who learns how to overcome, to live the life of an overcomer, I will give you the secret things that I've stashed away that really are meant to uphold God's people. He goes on to say, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The Bible literally says that, that that nourishing factor from God, that secret thing that's hid away to those who are overcomers, that it will write on the tablets of our heart a new name, that you'll be rebranded, that the old man will be washed away and dead, and that you will raise to new life in Christ, and that there will be a new objective, a new purpose stamped on your heart. Revelation chapter 2 and 26, to him who, over, 
To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. You have a right if you pursue this and press on and don't let time steal your faith. If you continue to live this life of an overcomer, that you can literally have the authority over nations. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life and will acknowledge his name before my Father and the angels that we have a great pronouncement that awaits us when we are those who learn to overcome in Christ Jesus. When we learn that the battle and the victory is already won, that we can walk in God's grace and thereby walk in his victory. When we find heaven as our home, we will be purified. We will be like, like radiant white. And before God and the angels, Jesus himself will announce your entry. Can you imagine that day when you find heaven is your home? All the stains of this life are just washed away and you stand proudly before God's throne and the angels encircle it screaming, holy, holy, holy. And God, through Jesus, stops the whole procession and says, this is the son, this is my daughter that we've been waiting for. This is my son. This is my daughter, the overcomer. This is my son. This is my daughter, the one who I shed my blood for. What a great day it will be when heaven is peeled back and we see God face to face and we don't have to worry about entrance to his throne room because the one who made a way stands at the gate and says, here they come, Jesus, or here they come, God. Here they come, right to your throne room. Here they come, angels. Watch out, here's the ones we've been waiting for. We sometimes don't understand the place we have in Christ because we haven't read through all the scriptures. Revelation chapter three, where are we at here? Oh, my notes just went bye-bye. Here we go. Revelation chapter three and verse 12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on him a new name. It goes on to say, you're going to be rebranded again. But more than that, you are going to be a pillar in that sanctuary. You are going to be one of those who upholds the edifice, who you're going to be one of those who the whole nations and tribes and all of the world look to and understand that's what an overcomer looks like. When we take our position seriously in Christ, we become, we become a pillar to heaven. How does this look in real life? What happens is you understand who you are in Christ. You understand your dominion. You understand your, the victory that has been bought by Jesus. You understand that you're an overcomer and you allow that to lead you in a lifestyle that calls other people to the gospel. And you become a pillar because all of these other folks see what your life has become. All of these other folks are pulled into the kingdom because of you. All of these other people find Jesus because of your life. That's what it looks like to be a pillar in the house of God. Revelation chapter three and verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. This one should get you excited. 
just as I have overcome and sat down with my Father on His throne. Listen, you understand what it is to be an overcomer. You understand what it is to live victorious in Christ. There's a day coming, not only when this world just kind of fades away and you know that everything on this planet is under subjection to the Lordship of Jesus in you. There comes a day when you can literally sit on the throne next to Jesus, next to God in your station of honor, of glory. This is what awaits those who learn to overcome. Listen, I didn't make up revelations. This isn't something that's even all that debated anymore. Folks are trying to figure out the analogy of it and how it all works, but they understand that the words here are very, very true. That when John was writing first off in this first few chapters, he set a tone and the tone was very simple that there is a church and it will overcome. And when it overcomes, God will be glad. God will be proud. God will announce it. God will enthrone it. We have a right to be that church. We have a responsibility in our generation to be that church. God created, it, God created you to overcome in every single area of life. He has made you to have dominion. And the church has criticized so many people when they exercise a level of dominion. You get someone who's entirely too wealthy, people will start criticizing him. I can't believe that guy. Look at all the money he has. He must, he must have messed somebody over to get that. I'm sure he lied or cheated or stealed to get that. You find someone with, with just the, the right amount of prominence in the area. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you know, I've heard rumors. The church has done a really good job of watching people ascend to a sense of prominence, to a place of dominion in the world. And we've done a really good job of cutting them down when Jesus says it's not only possible, it's your goal, it's your destination when you're in him, that you can ascend that you can ascend any level of business, that you can ascend any social sphere, that you can ascend any level of influence because the will of God is taking place, taking shape in your life, that you are an overcomer and that you can over overcome any obstacle that's in front of you. If you ever lose your dominion, you lose your dignity. It's a hard one for people to choke through. If you ever lose your dominion, your placement of who God's called you to be, you start to lose your dignity and worth and your value. The moment you can't step boldly into your dominion, understand you are bought with a price that you are not your own, that you have been called underneath the raiment of God himself, that you literally clothe or put on Jesus as your outer covering. And that's how God sees past your sin stain because he has to look right through Jesus. And that gives you a sense of value, of glory, honor, dignity, and worth. That gives you a sense of dominion. When you lose that, you start to shed off that robe. You start to pull off the covering. I'm not as much like Jesus as I want to be. I'm not as much like Jesus as I should be. I'm not as much like, like Jesus as I, as I should have acted. And the point is, it's not about your actions and it's not about your failures. It's not about your successes. It's not about your triumphs. It's about the reality that Christ shed his blood so that you can put on that very nature of Christ. And whether you are perfect in your endeavors or whether you fail daily, which we all do, God still has to see you through the lens of Jesus. He can't look around Jesus to get to you. He still has to look through that shed blood of Christ. And that's what gives you dominion. And that's what gives you glory, honor, dignity, and worth. And the moment you lose dominion, the moment you think you're not good enough to rule and reign as God has set you, 
you start to lose a sense of dignity and worth. You start to retreat back into that old life. You start to retreat back into the habits of the past. You start to retreat back into the old way of living and the old way of thinking. And God has set before you an opportunity as, as, as it's written out in the Old Testament, life, death, blessing, and cursing. And he gives us the answer to the riddle. And he says, choose life. Deuteronomy, that wasn't written in Deuteronomy just to give us a puzzle that hopefully we could figure out someday that was given to us as guideposts every day in every decision. Blessing, cursing, death, life. Choose life that you, it might go well with you and your descendants. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalms chapter 8 and verse 3. You're called to be an overcomer in every area of life because it's literally part of your spiritual DNA. We understand that when we come to Jesus and that we are remade back into our original intent, how God originally fashioned man to be made, we understand that there's a DNA process that shifts and changes. The Bible says that all things, the old things are passed away and everything is made new. Psalms chapter 8 and verse 3, when I look up into the night sky and I see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have made, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him and visit him. You've made him a little lower than heavenly beings, B'nai Elohim, the God counsel. You've crowned him with glory and honor, dignity and worth. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet. This is your spiritual DNA. There's a reason that this message and message series has been preached more from this church than anything else that we've preached. I've preached more about this than I have money. I've preached more about this than I have sin. I've preached more about this than I have any other concept. Why? Because if I can get you to refocus, to retrain your brain, to look at yourself differently, to find out who you are in Christ, to raise the level of spiritual DNA in you, then I know that I have to do much less counseling. It's really self-serving. I know that if you understand this, that when something attacks your body, you know how to pray to God based on your rightness in Christ Jesus, that you know that you can go boldly to the throne and because you're an overcomer, heaven literally announces your coming and says, God, here comes your child. Nathan, he's got a request. He's sick. He needs your power. And we don't flinch and expecting God to do the miraculous. That when you come to a moment of financial hardship, that we can boldly go to the throne and maybe our knees are knocking the first time, but the more we do it, the more we know we can go. And heaven announces, God, here comes your overcomer. They need your help. They need your provision. They need your providence. And God does his work. I know that if I can get Psalms chapter 8 and verse 3 through 6 in your brain, it will change the course of your life forever. It's a little self-serving in the sense that I don't want to work that hard, but it's a little self-serving in this, that I know that if I change your heart and your mind, that not only, not only will your life be better, your children's life will be better, your grandchildren's life will be better, the friends around you, their life will be better, because eventually this bleeds off into other people or they just disappear from your sphere of influence. Eventually you start talking like a crazy person. You get sick, you I ain't sick. That's the devil. It ain't going to happen to me. I've already gone to the throne of my father. I was announced when I came in. He looked at the royalty that's in me by the blood of Christ Jesus. He gave me entryway to the very throne room of heaven. And we've already dealt with this and worked it out. I'm not sick anymore. 
I'm not going to be burdened by poverty. Poverty doesn't have a right in my life. I entered heaven's throne room. I talked to the Lord of the universe, the one who literally flung their stars in their sockets as the psalmist writes out, and he sees me as one who's worthy of glory, honor, dignity, and worth. In fact, he put everything under my feet. I will work my tail off, but I'm not going to be subject to poverty. You learn how to reframe and reshape the argument once this scripture enters your heart and your mind. You learn how to step back and take ownership of what's yours. You learn how to re-identify. You're called to be an overcomer in every area of life because it's literally in your spiritual DNA. Authority is a byproduct of knowing your position. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, I'm going to run through it real quickly. 17 and verse 20 says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample over snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are announced in the throne room of heaven. Not that these worldly things are under your subjection. Rejoice that when you go to heaven's throne, that the angels stand at attention. Rejoice that when you go to heaven's throne, that Jesus announces your coming. Rejoice that you can go to heaven's throne boldly knowing that God will hear every prayer, every petition, because he's a good, good father who wants nothing but good things for his children. We have come too, we have come to be way too excited that the world that we live in sometimes listens to us. We've gotten way too excited about that and not excited enough about the fact that we can find heaven as our home when this life is over. We have become not excited enough that when we go in prayer to God's throne room, that he actually hears us and listens to us. That when we go to heaven's throne room, we can ask God of the impossible and we know that it will be accomplished for us. We get too excited that these earthly things happen temporarily and not excited enough that heaven itself is listening to our very needs and calls. To live in dominion, it's in our DNA. It's how you're created. It's part of who you are. When you come to Jesus and you are remade into the way God intended you to be from the beginning, you can't get away from the concept that you are made to be one who dominates in every area of life. You're not a loser because Jesus is in you. You're not a failure because Jesus is in you. You can't fail in your family when you listen to the Holy Spirit. You can't fail in your business when you listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you won't have opportunity to fail. I'm saying you don't have to take it. You find your worth outside of God. Your pursuits eventually will injure other people. Because we're made to be so dominant in our life, eventually we turn into something other than what God has intended for us. If our pursuits are outside of him, you become the control freak. I'm right. Because I'm right, therefore I have value. We all know people like that. Every argument, they have to win. Everything they say, they have to win. Every moment in time, they have to be the winner. Of, they'll, they'll beat a five-year-old in basketball just to prove that they're right. It's a control freak mentality. 
Maybe you'll have one spouse dominate another. Slavery's already been outlawed. Don't treat your spouse like a slave. Overbearing parenting shows up and we break the hearts of our children because we put so much pressure on them. Pressure from mom and dad to be something that they were never created to be. They weren't expected to be an accessory to your parenting. They're expected to be the glory, dignity, honor, and worth that's found in Christ Jesus. You become overbearing. Helicopter parents going to job interviews with a kid who's 35 years old. Don't laugh because it happens. When our pursuits are outside of Christ, we inevitably hurt other people. Jesus always lifted people in failure to restore them back to their right relationship with God. It doesn't matter if the temptations, the trials, the struggles of this world eventually find you on your knees before God. He is the God that will lift you. He is the God that will guide you. He is the God who will put you back up on a pedestal and allow you to overcome the next battle, the next instance, the next problem, in the next moment, if we'll just go to Him and ask. But too many of us wallow in our failures. Too many of us wallow in our shortcomings. And we think, God, we failed you and we failed others and we failed our family. How can we be worth anything at all? And all he looks at is looks at you through the lens of Christ Jesus and says, all I see is the purity of my son. All I see is the glory, honor, dignity, and worth that's espoused to you in Christ Jesus. If you'd get out of that kind of thinking, you'd understand who you are. Sometimes people don't like this message because it's the concept of who do you think you are? Well, sit down for a moment and let me tell you. I'm a child of the King. I'm an overcomer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No weapon formed against me shall prosper and any vain tongue that would rise up against me, I shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the children of God. Understand, that's not my story, that's your story too. That when someone says, who do you think you are? You've got to know who you are. Every time I think of this message, I'm reminded of that little monkey, Rafiki, in The Lion King. When he comes up to baby Simba, you don't even know who you are. And he tells that little boy, that little lion, you have no idea of the royalty, the royalty that flows through your veins. You have no idea who you are. And if we would take our stance as Christians, if we would take our place as the church, the world would have to bend itself to our will. When you recognize, when you recognize who you are in Christ Jesus, the temporal things of this world fade so, so very quickly. In Christ in you is literally the hope and glory of heaven. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In you is what the world is seeking. In you 
In you is their hope for their future. In you is the literal glory of God. In you is what has been kept secret and hidden for generations. In you is what God was trying to get through the world, first through his, through his kingdom kids, the Israelites. Later, he showed off in his person, Jesus, and now he wants to expose it to the rest of the known world through each and every one of us if we would allow ourselves to understand who we are if we would allow ourselves to come to the conclusion that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that you are crowned with glory, honor, dignity, and worth, and that everything that would come against you in this world has to bow under your feet. Listen, it's not that I don't get concerned about different issues in life. This last year, almost a year ago, Noble had what we thought was just a rolled ankle, took a couple of x-rays, but it wasn't getting better. Later, we find out that he has something severely wrong with his leg. He has an infection in the bone, an osteomyelitis. I didn't realize this, but later on, talking to the surgeon, osteomyelitis in the bone in, in adults generally results in an amputation. I'm glad he didn't tell me that the first time he looked at my kid. But when they told us it was serious and it was a bone infection, they wanted to see how far it had spread. I can guarantee you there were thoughts running through my, my head. God, what, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do here? Like, I've never dealt with this before. This is my boy. This is my son. And let me tell you something. It's one thing to believe for other people. It's another thing when it comes knocking at your door. We got in that car. We drove to Iowa City to have a good consultation. And we prayed for that kid. God, there's got, you, you got to take care of this. We don't know how far it could have spread. We don't know how devastating this infection could be. We got there and they literally knew exactly what to do in, in a matter of, of moments. We got there late in the evening. At 12.01, he got out of surgery. They had, they had cut through and just taken a little portion uh, of the infection. It was much smaller than they had anticipated. A little round of antibiotics, and he's good to go. He's never going to have a problem in that leg again. It could have meant amputation. It could have meant something as severe as amputation. It could have meant a, a blood transfusion and all kinds of, of other medication. It could have meant weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in the hospital. But on our way up there, something hit both Lori and I. We said, nope, we're not, we're not accepting this. I don't care how bad that infection looked in that MRI. I don't care how bad the doctors were freaking out when we left the emergency room here. Nope, that kid's healthy. That kid's whole. We got there, we trusted the doctors. They're gonna do exactly what they need to do. But that boy ended up healthy and whole, not because medical science is great, though we had awesome doctors. Not because we have one of the best children's hospital in the world just 45 minutes away, although we do. We know that kid ended up healthy and whole because we decided to take it to the throne room. And when we walked in the throne room, when we walked into that throne room, Jesus announced, God, here's your overcomers. Here's Lori, here's Nathan, here's Noble. They need something from you. Today, I want to ask you, challenge you, what are you taking to the throne room? What have you taken to God lately? Have you given him a job to do? Too many of us live life and we've not given God a job to do. We're trying to figure it out on our own. We're trying to figure out the payment. God, if I just move this money to here and this money to there, God, I'll figure it all out. Rather than taking it to the throne, taking it to heaven and saying, I'm an overcomer. Jesus already announced my, my way into heaven's courtroom, to heaven's gates. God, I need something from you. How many of us are giving God a job to do? As we were preparing to open this facility, God impressed on my heart as hard as he ever has. You need to give away a large sum of money. I said, God, I don't have it. Sorry. 
Sorry, I don't. It's not in the bank account. We don't have it right now. He said, boy, I told you to give it. I said, fine, you know me. I'll do it if you get me the funds. I was literally on a ladder right over here fixing one of these lights because I put in the wrong ones first and we're putting in the right ones next. And I'm fixing one of these lights to get ready for Sunday service. And it felt like, as soon as I said, God, you know me, you know I'll do it, it felt like the phone hung up. I thought, well, crap. I hope I didn't offend the Holy Spirit because I kind of need you. We're going to have a service in here in 48 hours. I kind of need you in this building. And I didn't think about it much after that. 48 hours later, we're walking to the building, talking to a bunch of people, thanking them for all the investments they did to get into this building. I walk up to a, a particular couple and I said, thank you. And they thought I meant for something different. They said, oh, well, great. You know, we just we wanted to bless the church and we had an opportunity because God had, God had, had um, blessed our lives with, with an inheritance. I don't want to give too much of their story, but, you know, and I thought, well, what are you talking about? I didn't really know at first. I just kind of, okay, whatever. And then I thought, oh, no, this was significant. What are you talking about? So I, I don't normally do this, but I went back to the counting room and I asked, you know, obviously something had come in. Can I, can I see what that was? One of the largest checks the church had ever been given, $22,000. In that, this is the part that messed you up though, but in that amount of money was exactly the $10,000 that God put on my heart the 48 hours before and said, you need to do this as a seed so that this church can be bought debt free. You need to do your part because you're asking the people to give seed. When is the church going to give seed? And I said, God, I got it. I understand the principle. We just don't have it. He told me, shut up, give me a job to do. I'll go do it. Look at what he did. But let me tell you the miracle here. He had to bless this family to bless the church so the church could do what it was called to do. Listen, understand, open your heart to what it is to be an overcomer. God will get it honestly, and in doing so, he will just enrich those around you as you do what he's called you to do. He's not going to steal. He's not going to diminish. He's going to enrich all of those around you to do what God has called you to do. Take something to the throne today. Take something big today. Understand that when the doors of heaven literally open, Jesus is announcing you as an overcomer. God, they need your provision. They need your help. They need your guidance. They need your healing. They need you today. Go to heaven with that open door mentality. This is what it is to be an overcomer.